Hi, I'm Tim Rood, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. So today I've got the distinct pleasure to welcome my friend Craig Phillips. Craig was most recently a special advisor to Secretary Mnuchin at the U.S. Treasury Department. Craig, thanks so much for joining us today. Great, great to be here, Tim. All right, Craig, so let me do you a, a proper bio, at least the, the high notes. So you've enjoyed a long distinguished career on Wall Street, and most recently, as I mentioned, in D.C. as special counsel to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. At Treasury, Craig worked with Secretary Mnuchin on issues related to domestic policy, housing finance policy, regulatory reform. Mr. Phillips has had a broad domestic and international experience in markets, financial regulation, risk management, financial stability initiatives. And right before joining the Treasury Department, Craig was a managing director and member of the operating committee of BlackRock Incorporated. While at BlackRock, Craig led a broad-based practice which advised central banks, banking supervisors, multilateral organizations around the world, including the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. That's a mouthful, Craig. That's an incredible accomplishment. Thank you. Oh, well, good. It's been a, been a long journey, but an interesting one. All right. So let's have a little fun here, Craig. So uh, doing a little bit of research, as I do, talking to folks and you know, doing what I can to find out to get a better sense of the people that I'm interviewing, I will say that I came away with two... I don't know. I'll call them urban legends. So we'll start with the first one. So before Trump, Donald Trump won the 2017 election, you were a fairly major donor to Hillary, Hillary Clinton's campaign and a member of her National Finance Committee. I read um, that you were, I think they called it, qualified as a Hillary superfan, or as they just call it, a quote-unquote hill blazer. That's in the words of the campaign because of your financial donations and other uh, donations. So obviously no judgment. I, I, I just, I don't wanna say this to score any political points, but during times of bitter partisanship, this is an impressive pivot from Clinton to Trump. As soon as the election was called for Trump, it's like you were taking career advice from Don King. You remember like, just make sure that you leave with the winner after the fight, you know what I mean? Yeah. So a little bit of that. Okay, that was one. The second one had to do with, I guess I'd call it your leadership style, which you're well-respected and accomplished, obviously. And most of what I read and heard is that you're brilliant. And we've met a few times, I would attest to that. But you do expect a lot from your teammates. So <laughs> this was in an article, I think it was dealmaker.com. What did the reporter mean when he said that, quote, snowflakes need not apply, end quote, when referring to your management style? And uh, I think for all you liberal arts majors out there, the journals also made reference, not so veiled comparison of you to Anne Rand, that was digging deep, Atlas Shrug reference. So <laughs> if you could shed some light onto those two anecdotes, that would be great. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's kind of funny when I, when I went to DC, I wasn't used to being a public figure and what you tend to find is they'll, one article will be written and then that'll be multiplied. So both Hillary Clinton donations and sort of one, I think, cited, I made an analyst cry. And the, and the other permutation is that kind of permeated the intro to most of the pieces covering the what I thought was the great work at Treasury. And I guess this will come across as advice to everyone is I deeply wanted to serve the country. So I'd gone to Larry Fink at BlackRock and told him I wanted to do it. There was a procedure there where you have to kind of retire and give them one year notice to, to leave the firm uh, with the different uh, attributes of the compensation programs. And so I had done that. 
knowing that, you know, gee, if time was getting on, if I was going to do it, I had to get after it. And of course, the candidates were who they were, you know, Hillary Clinton, and at the time, a lot of Republicans, including Donald Trump. And, you know, I, I had a commitment that I respect a lot of people that had served. I had seen people have very high impact that had a Wall Street background. I really thought that if Clinton won, you know, there was a difficulty sometimes getting appointed or confirmed if you had a financial background. So I guess some of the fundraising came out of both a, a habit of giving money in general. Larry really encouraged that among his his um, senior leaders. And I tended to give more to Democrats. I'm a real centrist at heart, but also a, a sense that that might be important to, to get an appointment in that administration. Lo and behold, President Trump won. I thought about it for a day. Steve Mnuchin was rumored to be uh, uh, the treasury appointee, and I had a very long relationship with him. So I decided my interest and desire to serve the country was no different uh, with that outcome. And in fact, I thought it might be more compatible with the financial regulatory vision that would arise from the Trump administration. I didn't know exactly what it would be, but I thought there was a fair chance that my contribution could be even more valuable and that I'd be more compatible with their approach to regulatory matters and even running government. And honestly, it, it delivered. You know, I had a great relationship with Secretary Mnuchin. Two thirds of what you do at Treasury is running the government. So it's exactly the same no matter who's president. And at the margin, uh, the third that was policy related is work I was really proud of. So while many sort of found it an unusual decision, I think when you think of serving, you're really serving the country. And it's something that every person business uh, should do. Obviously, many people in academics do it. Many people are career civil servants uh, and others have a expertise, but I think it's something where it was a, the thrill of a lifetime and I think a very valuable experience for me and hopefully a contribution to the country. In terms of style, I, I expect a lot of people. You know, I like to develop strong leaders and a lot of that starts in knowing what you're talking about, uh, being prepared and, and being and, and really being ready. You know, I've always been uh, in, the pro, in the business of serving clients. So I put my expectations not through my lens, but for, through what we owe to clients and having the you know, highest fiduciary standards, a perfection of view of quality is something I, I pride myself in. It's kind of interesting. The people I've worked for have been quite similar and Secretary Mnuchin was no exception. So he had a very high bar and performance for the people that work for him. So we got along just great. But it's funny you brought up both those things because, uh, you know, giving money to Hillary Clinton was a capital offense in the mind of some in the Trump administration. So, you know, uh, Secretary Mnuchin knew going in, as you know, President Trump himself was a registered Democrat not too long ago, as, as was his children and Secretary Mnuchin. So I was not alone. But when that got picked, every time it got picked up in the press, it was a lot of, a lot of friction. Yeah, it got picked up a lot. Yeah, these were certainly unprecedented times. Yeah, and you and Mnuchin clearly seem to share very similar leadership styles. Uh, so I could tell right away that you guys were hitting it off famously. So let me jump to one of the bigger ones, the issues that, you know, obviously we cover a lot of things on housing and housing finance. GSE reform, you know, has been top of mind. The topic has been like a bad penny for 12 years, it seems. But when Trump took office, many in the mortgage industry thought that the administration would move rather quickly to get the GSEs out of conservatorship. A couple of reasons. For one, you know, Trump had advisors and members of his transition team that were either A, critical of conservatorship, or B, were investors in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So you were the top housing advisor to the administration. So I guess ask plainly, you know, what happened? Why didn't more meaningful administrative or legislative reform happened during the Trump administration? Well, look, I'll be uh, honest with you, Tim. I'm, I'm frustrated with that. And it was one of the main reasons I went to Washington. And Secretary Mnuchin and I had a vision. I think the first weekend when we went into the office to 
start to get our arms around things, you know, he looked at me and said, look, if you and I can't end the conservatorships, no one ever will. So I hope that doesn't mean they'll never get ended. But it was definitely a vision that both he and I had. And I'll share a couple of things I guess I've never really said publicly before. The first is right from the get-go, the president had to produce a budget. And as you know, it's a symbolic gesture as the direction of travel. But, you know, it's very important, uh, too, because the president's with his party then frames sort of the budget priorities. And Secretary Mnuchin and I sat on the desk and said, well, look, I mean, they've always criticized sweeping the money from Fannie and Freddie to fund Obamacare, some would say, or just funding the government. We should stop doing it. So our very strong recommendation was to stop the sweep and take that money out of the budget right away in the first budget. You know, and of course, that's that's day one in in, uh, January. And uh, we got this horrific reaction from kind of two camps. One is, gee, it makes the deficit bigger. We don't want to take it out. And the other was, we can't really start letting Fannie and Freddie keep capital until we, quote, reform them. To which I said, look, they're doing whatever they're doing. We can regulate how we see fit. Actually, they're doing pretty well at the moment. I think they've reformed a lot. But be that as it may, you know, what they need is capital. And right now they have uh, almost no capital. And we were shot down. So, So had that gone the different way and we on principle had just stopped the sweep then I think it would have changed all of history and arguably was really more consistent with the Republican orthodoxy did not use those unappropriated funds to really fund general activities of the government then what happened was really priorities you know you you get into government and you 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 have the administration priorities and the first was tax reform and Secretary Mnuchin really did not want to have anything clouding our um, dialogue with the Hill on that. And we also had a really important piece of bank legislation going through and bank regulatory reform, particularly helping community banks and, and credit unions at the community level size. And that really took up all the time and all the oxygen in the room. I would say that sort of when those two things got done and I thought we were going to launch into to housing, there then was a sentiment, well, we need to really wait for Director Watt's term to end and to have our appointee. And it was very interesting. I would go to White House meetings and I would hear sort of the tales of legends of what Mel Watt was like and what he would and wouldn't do and how liberal he was. And, and quite honestly, I dealt with him on a regular basis. I would say his position on this issue is not terribly different than Director Claver's. He thought that the conservatorship should be ended and he would have actually done almost anything we wanted to do. In fact, he felt very strongly that the sweep should be ended and they should start building capital, just as we had thought. So the, the decision was made to wait for the nominee. It was ultimately Director Calabria to get nominated and confirmed. And that was another a big, a, a big hiatus of time that went by because that got us all the way to 2019. I ended up leaving in 19. Uh, really, it had been three, almost three years. I was exhausted. Uh, I felt I'd done what I'd set out to do in regulatory vision and reform. And one of the last things I finished was the vision paper for for reform that Mark still uh, refers to and follows. Uh, But by that time, it was kind of late in the game. I thought, well, gee, we're now looking at an election year. And of course, no sooner than I left, than, than we had the impeachment. So once again, circumstances intervened. I wasn't there for this whole period, but uh, Director Clabby geared up. He made a lot of speeches, talked about what he was going to do. He had to gear up on several key things like the capital rule, resolution planning, and just the housekeeping of the regulatory environment you'd have if you weren't conservator. As you're a conservator, you have ultimate power. Once you're the regulator, you have to have a regulatory environment. And then I think really four things happened. One, as I said, you know, you had the impeachment. You know, the second, you had COVID. 
which took all of Secretary Mnuchin's time and was a, such a crisis and obviously had to a lot of extraordinary measures that Director Clabra had to invoke. And then finally, you had the, uh, the lost election, which is the third point leading to the insurrection on January 6th. So I think a lot of people thought, well, gee, right at the end of the term, you know, hopefully you can finish it. I spoke to people in the Biden transition team and said, look, trust me, I sat in that chair four years ago. You should thank them if they end the conservatorship because you won't have to deal with the political issue. And it's the, it's what ought to happen. I'm not saying they agreed with that, but they certainly heard me out. But lo and behold, I think because of a combination of the still unsettled environment of COVID, but the, you know, the controversy over the insurrection that just, um, you know, I think in due course that Secretary Mnuchin and consulting with his predecessors decided you just can't make moves like that in the end. So unfortunately, here we sit, you know, with a new administration, you know, you tend to have people then start thinking about it again. I know Director Calabria feels that conservatorships would end. That was my goal, as I don't know really exactly what form it should be, but they shouldn't be this form forever. The last thing I'll say is the investors. You know, I think uh, Secretary Mnuchin has a really high standard of integrity and a sense of conflict. And I think that was actually troubling to him, but because he had a financial relationship in his private sector life before going to Treasury with some of those investors, I think he was very torn between a strategy that sort of helped the shareholders with the perception that that would sort of be uh, viewed as being a conflict. Now, shareholders doing well means the country does well, does well and, and mortgage credits flowing. So it's not incompatible with uh, resolving the conservatorships. But I think it was a source of personal tension. So while he never really said it to me, I think it sort of led to him being occasionally what might seem to be stuck on the issue. But if we went through the counterfactual, what if, had we stopped the, the sweep of capital day one, by the time we got to the fourth year of the Trump administration, we easily could have done a, a secondary offering or two and fully capitalized the two com companies or get very, very close to it. Uh, so the last dollar of money, uh, dollar of capital would be in. And that could be to actually to a pretty high capital standard. So the, yeah. the, the really the shame of this issue is you have to get after it and you have to have the political will. And I think what happened to us ultimately was a series of intervening priorities and events which uh, kicked the can down the road. And it's an it's a unfortunate outcome. I'm pulling for Director Calabria to hopefully finish it under his watch. And if not, uh, his successor finish it because it's something that needs to be done. Yeah, <clears throat> here, here. Now, it's a, that's quite a tale. And um, I, can, I can certainly empathize with the things that you're referring to. You know, in D.C., there's what should happen and what will happen, and they generally are not the same. And yeah, I, I think you're right. If you had pulled it off and gotten them out of conservatorship, the Dems would owe you a, a debt of gratitude, much like I thought when the Trump administration came in, that they're like, they would, that the logic would be, hey, look, this was Obama's problem. If we fix it, you know, in the first year, we can take our lumps if there's losses, bloodshed, whatever. We can blame it on the previous administration. But the longer we hang on to this thing, then the more it becomes our problem. And I think once it became clear that it was their problem, you get a sort of, of a paralysis and your, your instincts tell you first do no harm to a you know, multi-trillion dollar market that's as critical to so many things as housing is. Yeah. And I think if there's a difference maybe between Director Clabra's 
uh, vision in mind is that I think Fannie and Freddie are reformed. In other words, if you go back to what got the mortgage market into crisis, none of those practices exist anymore. And Fannie and Freddie itself have the best mortgage technology, the best risk management, and I think uh, good ethics and strong principles. I mean, they're hardworking people that held that, those things together and really turned them into totally different companies, which is why I was so confident they could raise capital. But there's a narrative that sort of, if you go back to 08, that Fannie and Freddie are evil and sort of had too much influence on the Hill and some other things. So I think the key to this is that, you know, you can regulate them as you see fit and manage the size of the federal government's role in the mortgage market through time. But actually, these are pretty good companies that have already been reformed. Um, you just can't do it over and over again. And, and um, I think the teams, management teams there have done an excellent job modernizing and, and innovating on their platform. Yeah, particularly when they've got no incentive to do so, right? Um, So I I totally agree. And that's a nice pivot over to, you know, another topic related to the GSEs and FHFA. You know, the the regulator, uh, the GSEs, of course, FHFA and conservator really appears to be de-emphasizing, you know, innovation at the GSEs, which they're so good at and they're so passionate about under the current leadership. And that's including limiting some of the pilot programs. The thought process seems to be one, look, you guys you got to save money and build capital. And the other one is, look, you've got to moderate the competitive advantages that the GSEs enjoy today over others, you know, other buyers and insurers of mortgage credit so that, you know, you actually can have a private competition or additional guarantors at some point in the future. So how, how do you feel about those policies in general? Look, I think it's a, t- it's a tricky question how you position innovation at the GSEs. I think Director Calabria has a view that he's held for a long time that the government's role in mortgage finance is too large and Fannie and Freddie's market share are too large. So I think in some senses, not allowing them to innovate would somehow level the playing field uh, between them and other parties. The problem with that thinking in my mind is there are no other parties like them. I mean, the only other party like them is Jenny May, and they're not the primary market. They're the, the secondary market. So when they do an innovation, which allows a borrower to apply for a mortgage more easily or a servicer to understand how to do a forbearance or something that allows investors to understand prepayment risk or credit risk better, they're actually helping the homeowner get a lower rate. So I think innovation is critical. And it's also critical to keep the great benefits we're seeing from technology in the mortgage space. You know, the, the uh, COVID made us sort of work out of office and deal with a lot of different uh, new technology and approaches. And it's been a godsend to keep the housing a strong point of the economy. So personally, I think Fannie and Freddie are leaders in innovation. They have the world's best technology. Uh, because they have high earnings and high revenue, they're able to fund technology budgets that most private companies can't. So um, I think innovation is important. And I personally would encourage the pilot programs to uh, continue those innovations because they benefit the entire mortgage market. They're, they don't just benefit Fannie and Freddie. Yeah, I agree. And, and certainly at times now where you've got the cost to originate a mortgage, if you look at it just from a labor perspective, it costs as much in labor to assemble an F-150 as it does to assemble a mortgage uh, package, which is insane. We all know that, of course, data, data, data analytics, blockchain, a whole host of, you know, role and rule-based um, technologies should be able to drive massive efficiencies and not at the expense of the efficacy, the quality of the product. Quite frankly, it's 
I think when I was at Fannie Mae, you quickly learned that if you focus on the, the efficacy, the quality of the, uh, of the loan package, then you actually drive the efficiencies that you so long for. So they're not mutually exclusive. They're actually complementary. Exactly. I agree with you. So let me, let me move. Hopefully this is a, not a prophetic sort of transition, but you know, we are in a world of seemingly a crisis, a financial crisis every 10 years, at least since I'd say the federal government really started intervening in the 60s, probably early 70s. So you know, you've got to be at least in the middle of a dozen, half a dozen of these over your time from, I'm guessing, looking at your bio, you know, the New York City's bankruptcy in the 70s, the SNL crisis in the 80s, commercial real estate crash in the 90s. Oh, God, I hated this one. The Asian and Russian financial crisis in uh, 97, 98. There's a long story in that for me. Great financial crisis, of course, 2008. And now we've got the COVID market meltdown. Hopefully that was short-lived and we're pulling out the other side of it. Now, I came up with a couple of themes about this, but you know, from my point of view, just looking back casually at this, and I'm sure you've looked, scrutinized it further than I, given that you were deeper in the pocket than I was, but you know, a market gets new sources of leverage. These are the things that are themes that are basically leading to these panics. You've got uh, markets get new sources of leverage, then they get too much leverage. Then comes the financial engineering, derivatives, swaps, structured assets, basically to expand the bets investors can take to protect their positions and or speculate. Then you get asset bubbles. And last but not least, a sharp and sudden sell-off that triggers the crisis. So you've structured products, you've traded those structured products. In your view, are you seeing any new financial innovation that has you excited or concerned? You know, I'd even throw in the federal monetary, modern monetary theory as a topic. It's a big one and a mouthful. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, how do you look at the risk and the benefits of this financial innovation that's helped and seemingly hurt us? Well, look, all these cycles have um, occurred with some of those big themes you mentioned, you know, leverage, you know, lack of capital, and in most case, many cases, a lack of transparency. And of course, you also have the psychology where you have a bubble-like mentality. So I think, you know, we have a lot of innovation going on that is really positive, And I don't think it's contributing to the risk we have, but you're right. We've had too many crashes and, and we need to regulate and, and manage our, our risk um, uh, to, to avoid that. You know, in my career, I think the biggest trend in innovation has just been the decentralization, decentralization of computing power. I remember when the first trader had a, at that time, a Mac on his desk, there was huge arbitrageable relationships that you could, if you had instantaneous calculation capability that no one was doing. And that trend, which started really in the late 70s, accelerated greatly as the um, uh, cheapness of data and the ability to move it quickly matured. And also uh, programs and algorithms could be created to really kind of replace man with machine in terms of trading acumen, but more importantly, reacting to news, you know, pulling words out of earnings announcements for positive negative sentiment and immediately taking positions on stocks and the the huge algorithmic trading um, ex, uh, uh, facilities that we have today. So I really think the two things I think uh, uh, that neither of which I think are contributing to the risk of a crisis is really the electronification of markets, the ability of looking at price data, studying it, trade execution and lowering trade costs. And, you know, Chairman Jay Clayton at the SEC did a lot of reforms while he was in office there, which I hope stand. 
And the second is the acceleration of extending credit uh, more quickly and cheaper by sort of digitizing the application experience and also giving the technique to collect underwriting information and financial data to the you know permission to the consumer, the permission lenders to look at it. And that's true of consumers. It's also true of large businesses, but it's true of uh, large corporations too and how professional institutional investors look at corporate credit. So honestly, my experience with all of those crises that you mentioned where people didn't know what risk they had. And if you actually have a digitized environment and access to data, someone might ignore what risk exists, but they have the ability to understand it. So I feel a lot better really about the markets and their transparency and their liquidity because of all those changes in innovation and used responsibly. It really you know, it gives you another tool to really manage risk and to have everyone know the same thing. Having said that, I think we've found ourselves in a an enormous bubble at the moment, you know, to sort of offset the impact of COVID and the shock, the, the federal spending and fiscal stimulation, as well as the monetary policy was designed to inflate asset values, you know, and it wasn't really so much designed to inflate them, it was supposed to keep them from deflating. Well, lo and behold, a year later, the economy still feels we talk about a 6% GDP growth, so, so it sounds like it's huge growth. Obviously, that's getting back to where we started. You know, uh, asset prices and stocks uh, and uh, real assets and commercial real estate and crypto and everything are very inflated by this easy money. So I think our risk now in the market is that bubble that's been created through fiscal and central bank policy. The government debt is just enormous compared to GDP, and the GDP has to grow to to be able to service that correctly. And imagine where that would be in terms of cost if rates revert to a normal level. I think we now are looking at real inflation because of both the asset inflation, but also shortages from COVID and supply chains, scarceness of commodities. And really one thing that started in the Trump administration was kind of a, a trade war mentality where there's less open trade around the world than there, there was before and a sentiment that that's a, that's a good thing. So, I, I, Tim, I do worry that some of the excesses you have in valuations are, are on the table now, but market participants have the data to understand what risk they have and hopefully the discipline to, to, to manage it correctly. Because of the vaccine, we just might get out of this through some miracle and corporations can grow their earnings to, to meet the price expectations they have in the market. I don't know if that's going to work out, but I'm very hopeful that because of the vaccine, we're, we're coming out of this in one piece. And, and although there's been a lot of a death and sorrow and, and tragedy. And a lot of people are still very disrupted. We're, we're obviously coming out of it on the other side. So I'm an optimist and hope for the best. But I, I do think we uh, the, the policies have created a bit of a bubble. And data is an innovation of the key to manage your risk through at, at all times, including a time like this. Yeah, but to your point, uh, I wouldn't call it a bubble, but maintaining the asset prices is policy one, because the other two ways out of that debt bubble would be totally untenable. You can either default your way out or the second one's probably not untenable as much as it is too darn difficult is you to grow your way out and you have some, you know, secular growth challenges that make it darn difficult. But, you know, you can pull out the driver and every whole QE, MMT, whatever, and maintain asset prices as you have even through the last crisis in an effort to hope, to your point, for some miracle that we come out the other side of this unscathed. But that's, not exactly cogent policy making. It's just a little bit of an extending and pretending. 
Yeah, and what I what I've really found through my career is that things failing is is good. You know, you actually have to let things fail. And really, I think the lesson of 08 was sort of we just couldn't absorb the failure. So the government stepped in with the bailouts, not only here in the U.S., but around the world, TARP and numbers now that actually look small compared to what we're doing with COVID, but we're actually unprecedented. But along with that in Dodd-Frank came sort of legislation that had stress testing and living wills and resolution planning such that sort of the regulator was perceived to manage the risk and therefore nothing would ever fail again. And I think when we entered COVID, maybe more should have failed. You know, I mean, you know, the problem is that, you know, once you start bailing out things and supporting them, you're creating an artificial flow of capital that's not sustainable. And once the government gets in, it can't get out. The Federal Reserve on its balance sheet, now we're up to almost $9 trillion, which is way above where it was in 08, and our, which was arguably a much um, more serious uh, structural crisis than COVID because of the nature of, 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 uh, of its uh, causes and, and, its, and, its, and the root issues with the financial system. And, you know, here we are. They really had not unwound the exposure from that last time around. So the Fed, Federal Reserve owned almost 30% of all the mortgage-backed securities when this crisis started. And then lo and behold, they're actually doing quantitative easing and buying more treasuries and mortgage securities. So we're on a cycle that I think eventually will need to be broken by letting things fail when they're insolvent. Unfortunately, right now, it's mostly small businesses in the U.S. and restaurants and hotel owners and other uh, people in hospitality that are most impacted. But it's just part of the cycle. And if you try to take that cycle away and subsidize it from the government, you, you get on a treadmill that you can't get off of. So I think, I think we're walking a very thin line there on the policy side of how we start to pull back uh, the support we've given the economy, which even if it was for good intention was so voluminous, uh, withdrawing it's going to have a shock itself. Yeah, I've said this before, but I've, I've yet to find a policy equivalent to methadone because that's just it, getting off these drugs, and they're numerous now, is uh, is almost inconceivable without risking you know a real market fallout. But <clears throat> it's a big topic, so I, I appreciate your feedback on that. So maybe maybe we'll pivot back to Treasury Department. I mean, <clears throat> it's kind of like you obviously were in the private sector for you know forty years or so. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur. I think this is probably a very it's probably not dissimilar in that as people think about government service a little bit like they might think about being an entrepreneur. It's a romantic concept if you've never done it, right? So, I mean, by basically any measure, you, you, you've had a heck of a go of it just in the private sector. Very diverse and successful career. And one of the things that I read, which I thought was great, it, it makes this story of how you pursued your goal of government service seem that much more you know, unpretentious because basically, as I understand it, you went to volunteer for the Trump team through their traditional volunteer site. You didn't go through, you know, the context you had on Wall Street or anywhere else that I'm familiar with. And you obviously did what everybody else would do or anybody else would do, but you were anything but anybody else. You had just retired, as I mentioned, from as an managing director at BlackRock, member of their operating committee, when you reached out to the team. So maybe take us through the gig. I mean, what what took you to Treasury specifically? I know the government service generally maybe what were your main areas of focus and naturally what was it like operating in the Trump administration? Well, look, that is true. I did apply through the uh, Make America Great Again portal 
and uh, throw my name in the hat literally the, the next day. And uh, then, of course, start working relationships. So really, for people that want to get into government, there's two places. You can be a civil servant and there's a application and recruiting process and you're not a political appointee and you have longevity of the position, but you're selected as in more or less a normal hiring process. And political appointees serve at the will of the president. And so you're picked by the, someone in the White House or, or the head of your agency. And so I had to start playing all the angles. Um, a great supporter of mine through the years and of many of you, I'm sure, and many people is Lou Ranieri. And I called Lou. He'd been a Republican and more plugged into the Trumps, particularly uh, Ivanka and, and, uh, and others. And he immediately put a, a good word in for me. And, and, uh, and that was helpful. And of course, he knows Mnuchin well. And he called Mnuchin up, not that I need an introduction Mnuchin, but, you know, kind of said, look, when's the last time you had to walk on like Craig Phillips? You probably ought to take him, you know? So I was almost his first pick other than the close aides he'd had helping him on the campaign and uh, where he'd been the finance director. So, you know, it takes work to get anything, you know, and I just, I just like to work hard. So getting into the Trump administration was different than anything I'd done, but it was work. And, and I was really pleased it was successful, but really, I think that the, the biggest I think shortcoming, I think that when I look back at the Trump administration now through the lens is there just wasn't enough regular process. The president was prone to write tweets. He would react to things that weren't part of our policy framework that perhaps playing to his base, but, you know, would be a distraction from the policy objectives. And it was just uh, undisciplined, I guess you'd say, and unconventional. And I think it was advertised that it was going to be unconventional, untraditional, but many times that was without purpose. So there was constantly a tension with the press, not a good flow of information, and difficulty managing the agenda. I'd point to the famous incident in the lobby of Trump Tower, where four or five people came down the elevator with the president, Secretary Mnuchin, Gary Cohn, who was director of the NAC then, Elaine Chow, the head of transportation. And the reason they're coming down, they were going to announce the infrastructure plan. And in fact, the first question was about Charlottesville. And then that press conference turned into the famous Charlottesville comments that the president made. And actually, to my knowledge, I don't think they ever got to the topic of infrastructure, which is why they were all standing there in the lobby. So that was just one really real life example how in the White House and in government, you have to just be very disciplined with a machine-like environment. So while I don't agree with everything that President Biden is doing, I think the relative structure and regular order will serve it well and the country well. And it was the biggest thing that was kind of lacking in the Trump administration uh, is that structure and order. And it started really right at the top. If you look at it, the press isn't particularly easy on Biden. The press isn't easy on anybody. You know, you do have to manage press relations in some logical manner. But my role at Treasury was really counselor to Secretary Mnuchin. I, I served in the capacity of the Undersecretary of Domestic Finance. So most of the work was really sort of interacting with the other regulate the regulators to sort of work on the regulatory agenda. It was funding the government and running the debt program. And then there were special topics like Fannie Freddie, the bankruptcy in Puerto Rico, and countless other things. I mean, the Treasury makes 85% of the payments of the U.S. government, so it's an enormous payment infrastructure through the Bureau of Fiscal Services and things like the financial report of the U.S. and running FSOC activities and and SIFI designations were uh, on our plate. So it was a fascinating tour that really used all of my experience from markets as well as knowledge of regulation 
And I was really proud of the work we did and, 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 and very lined that it was really good for the economy and good for open flow of capital and liquid markets. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was, seems like an amazing time. I remember when I went and visited with you and uh, I think it was Paul Mullings from our team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just an intoxicating place. It's not like the West Wing, which is cute, but I mean, the treasury has got such gravitas. It's got to be a, a pretty wild thing to, to go there every day. Oh, it's, um, a lot of, it's a real thrill. But I, um, I was keying on something you just mentioned, which was interesting. You know, the two of the common criticisms of President Obama and Trump, probably one of the few that they probably share, is that um, they both suffered because they didn't have advisors that either that would speak up loud enough or ones that Obama or Trump uh, valued enough to actually, you know, heed their counsel. seems like Biden has probably got that fixed. And it makes a big difference to your point, just in terms of structure, organization, yada, yada. Yeah. I mean, what you realize is the government's a big place and the, the president actually makes very few individual decisions. So really what it's about is a direction. You've got to set the direction and then you've got to have appointees in place that can really make the actions happen that would support that direction. But it's all due process, your relationship with the Hill and you know your ability to administer through agencies that you don't really directly control, but you've appointed ahead of and you, you can uh, do your traffic control from there. But it's, it takes a lot of organization and experience to know how to operate in the government. So something like someone like President Biden from being in this, their whole career, his whole career has a huge advantage over a newcomer like President Trump, or really anyone else. And of course, President Obama himself also was, you know, rather inexperienced uh, when he took office. Uh, had a lot of passion, very charismatic. Definitely had a vision and stuck to it, but uh, you know, had 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 limited uh, executive experience. Yeah, and to your point, you're you're bringing all of these experiences from your, you know from your professional career outside of the government. And that brought me to another thing I was thinking about over the weekend was the similarities and the differences of the last three administrations regarding their teams. Like in both Obama and Trump administrations, you had ex-government, ex-Goldman Sachs people, and they were permeated key positions in the federal agencies. Now it seems like BlackRock is becoming, say, the new farm system for developing politicians and advisors, but is Definitely getting some traction. We're moving away from, what was it? Uh, government sacks was the, the term that they used during Obama. And now it's more like, you know, in rock we trust or something like that. But Well, I was the only one in the Trump administration, but there was uh, there is quite a bumper crop in the Biden administration. Exactly. And I think it, uh, Larry himself is really deeply into, interested in public policy and not so much for what's good for BlackRock, but what's good for BlackRock's clients and the economy. So he truly cares about the policies and their impact on teachers and firemen and people saving for retirement and everyone that entrusts BlackRock to, to money, but manage their money. But uh, yeah, there's quite a bumper crop of people that were uh, more Democrat orientation. So there were more of them and uh, quite a number in the, uh, in the treasury and, and the, the West wing. Well, look, enlightened self-interest works. That's what yeah. these policymakers should be coming in with that, you know, all in we win sort of thing. But to that point, was there anything from BlackRock, a guiding principle, a philosophy that served you well in the Treasury Department? Well, look, I think the key is being a fiduciary. You know, being in government is sort of less political than people think it is because it's really operating sort of administrative units. And the key is who are you a fiduciary to? I, you know, I want to, to work every day at the Treasury thinking about the people who voted for President Trump. 
And there are people that were worried about their income, hadn't seen growth in income, saw their jobs go overseas. The tensions that you have between wealth and and inequity in wealth, and and that's resulted in racial gaps and divides and uh, many, many other factors in healthcare and and education and all the things you expect to be so so great. And so what you need to do every day, just like you do in business, is try to make things better than, than you found them. And I think now with COVID, you have the, the, a recovery, but you have the, the paradoxical nature of sort of the government fueling the recovery, and we've got to get that back in the private sector hands. So, I mean, coming back to mortgages, thank God we didn't have a mortgage collapse. I would have thought with what was going on with job uncertainty that we would have another housing collapse. And if the prices started going down, you'd have a panic. And we had 08 all over again. It never crossed my mind that I would live through that again. And kind of ironically, the opposite happened. And had we done this in 08, it probably would have been different, which was the forbearance, immediately letting people not pay their mortgage as opposed to putting pressure on them to get them out of the house. And that policy alone, while it didn't peak at a very high level, really took the pressure out. And I think because people were working from home, uh, people thought differently about their residential circumstances and, and, and sort of it looked at like more of a lifestyle and an investment again. And we have a fundamental shortage of housing uh, that's really kind of crept up on us since the last crisis. So fortunately, we have a strong housing market and housing economy, and I think very sound mortgage lending principles. So hopefully that can carry us, um, help carry us through. And it certainly has been a real strong point of the whole economy is in the policy steers that we got through and Director Calabria uh, did his part on them. We're really fortunate to, uh, to keep, us, uh, keep us where we are and not, not look at another housing crisis. Yeah, assuming that we can take our you know, foot off the accelerator just in terms of the government support, uh, modulated, I guess you would say, um, the idea being, of course, that you know, if you continue to intervene in these markets, the mortgage markets and the housing market the way we have, uh, the way the federal government really has, you run the risk that over time, you're just going to pervert the systems so much that you'll erode confidence in the, the participants, the stakeholders, investors. And that could have you know, disastrous long-term consequences. So hopefully we'll get out of this you know, on a relative basis, unscathed relative to what we thought we were going to see at you know, say April of last year. Well, let me, let me close out with something a little bit of a, of a harder pivot, Craig. So you know, I caught up when we were first talking about doing this, I was going back and looking through some of the things that you were intimately involved in. And one of the big things that you had taken on, which was that white paper in 2018 or 19 around the, the financial system, the economic opportunities, you covered non-banks, fintech, innovations. I will, there was a bunch of principles. I won't bore everybody with you know, some of the laundry list of things, but man, that was, that was no casual undertaking. And it had some great conclusions. It, I, I liked it because it was looking at the great financial crisis. You're looking at the negative impact, of course, on banks, which gave rise to the non-banks and the IMBs. And as interesting, if not more, which was the fintech revolution that emerged from the ashes of it. Maybe you could take me through a little bit of what, what prompted the administration to write this report and any of those aha moments or takeaways on risk, risk management, whatever you want to talk about, given the advancements in data and data analytics since the great financial crisis? 
Well, look, I mean, when uh, President Trump took office, you know, he was fueled by a, a lot of different constituents. But on the conservative side, if you pick one soundbite, they would say repeal Dodd-Frank. And, you know, that wasn't really a strategy. So I think what was settled on was direct Treasury to do a study of the regulatory system and then, you know, lay out a blueprint that the uh, could be the blueprint that the uh, appointees to the various agencies like the OCC and the Federal Reserve and the FDIC might follow. I say might follow because those appointees are independent agencies, but they uh, hopefully are, are, are uh, moving to a tone set by the president. So I took it on as the probably the most important thing I'd ever done in my whole life because it was such a large responsibility. And really, when I looked at it, it wasn't just banks. I think some people thought, well, let's just eliminate Dodd-Frank or the stress test and everything will be fine. And I said, look, the financial system is everything. It's the banks. It's the credit unions. It's the large banks and the smaller institutions. But also it's the capital markets, asset managers, insurance companies, and most importantly, uh, fintechs, you know, and innovation. And sort of how do you get the non-bank financial uh, innovation properly channeled into the real economy and properly regulated with with a, a level playing field? So I ended up dividing it into four pieces, which wasn't really an instruction, but it was the only way to, to manage it on time. And, you know, we had 120 days, I think, to produce our result, and at least we were able to produce the first volume. But the first was on banks and credit unions. You know, the second was on capital markets. The third was on asset management and insurance. And the, the final was on uh, non-bank financials, technology and innovation. And, you know, Tim really was a, a thrill to sort of be able to issue spots. So the way I ran the process was just really encourage the staff at the Treasury. And we brought Secundis in from the SEC and the Fed and the OCC to really help with it and say, look, what part of the law do you think would sort of eliminate duplication, make regulation more efficient, effective, and tailored, or what would sort of el eliminate duplication? And sort of what role does the regulated entities play in supporting economic growth, you know, creating jobs and sort of a better life for Americans? And so through that prism, which was the direction, we just looked at regulation, say, look, you know, the stress test is applied to, you know, too small of an institution, that threshold should be higher. You know, market liquidity and derivatives and other elements of how markets are made and equities could be reformed to be pr promote more transparency or liquidity. I'd say, you know, and, and we were able to sort of do a menu and Secretary Mnuchin would approve the menu at the end of the day, but it really was kind of no holds barred. And probably about 80% of them were things that the regulators could do. Uh, not too much was in legislation. Uh, we did not advocate for repealing Dodd-Frank, but we're just altering it. We changed how CIFIs were designated at FSOC. We didn't propose abolishing FSOC, but we thought it should be more activities-based uh, to look at the activity rather than the one entity that's going to cause the problem. And in the case of the banking bill that we did get passed, we lay, raised the thresholds that were in uh, in Dodd-Frank for stress tests and other uh, prudential regulation, which really put very heavy burdens at two points, 10 billion of assets, which is now a tiny bank, and 50 billion of assets. And we took those thresholds way up. So in total, we ended up uh, of the 80% that was regulatory, almost 80% of that got done between the OCC, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC. And in many cases, they have to do things together uh, some didn't get finished, uh, like the Community Reinvestment Act reform. Only OCC adopted it, for instance, but uh, at least one agency adopted it. So I was really thrilled because you think sometimes your work doesn't matter, but a lot of it got done. 
And uh, it made really the flow of credit and access to credit more fair and equal. So I think on the left and the right, people said this is a sensible recalibration. We needed to take a fresh look at this after the 08 crisis and after 10 years of Dodd-Frank. And the bipartisan banking bill, which was one of the only really truly bipartisan pieces of legislation driven, Andrew Ullman over in the White House drove, I did a lot at Treasury on that. You know, a lot of it was based on our recommendations. It really helped community banks be more competitive because Dodd-Frank, while it put a huge burden on the big banks, it put a burden on everybody. And really the big had gotten bigger since it had been implemented. So I think we've really made it uh, easier to be a smaller bank and they really do truly banks and credit unions and the communities serve their communities a bit different than the, the global GSIBs and all their, uh, all their constituents they serve. So that was the, that was the, uh, the lay of the land. It was a huge responsibility, a ton of work. The four volumes are still out there in the um, public domain. I'm, I'm very proud of them. I'm, I'm proud to see that a lot of it got adopted. Yeah. Let's just hope that they're sticky, that they don't get reversed. I, I thought it was, um, it was a great effort. The impact analysis is key. It doesn't seem like policymakers give as much consideration to the impact on, you know, the businesses that have to implement these programs that are truly the, the tip of the spear in terms of as instruments of public policy, you need these private enterprises to implement and distribute these benefits. And, um, you know, the more that we can treat these partnerships between private and public sectors as such partnerships, not adversarial, um, I think it'll be in everyone's best interest and ultimately better achieve the public policy objectives of the administration. Absolutely. I'd never known regulators like I knew them in this role. I dealt with them, but never had personal relationships. And I think the key is they have to cooperate with each other to not sort of have overlap and unnecessary overlap, but they also have to truly understand who, who they're regulating. And I think because the 08 crisis was largely viewed as being caused by the banks and greed, they were the enemy. And we need to take, take everyone out of the penalty box. And it doesn't give anyone a free pass. In fact, under the OCC and CFPB leadership, there's somewhat were enormous fines uh, levied against Wells Fargo and Citi and others. So it wasn't like they were lenient, but you truly have to understand what the regulated entity is doing and how, what they need from the regulator. And there's a mutual accountability there that, that, that needs to exist. And that had broken down almost irretrievably since the OA crisis. And I think it's been put back in a, uh, not just a healthy place, a more normal place. So part of this was getting to the post-crisis regime. Never anticipated we'd have the COVID crisis, but I think a lot of what we did in general in Dodd-Frank and then the tweaking we did sort of made COVID uh, less of a shock to the financial system. And and the banks are quite well capitalized with strong and predictable liquidity. So uh, I think it was a test that showed that that the uh, economy passed. So it was a validation of a lot of work done over for, over a long period of time. Well stated. Thank you, Craig. Well, hey, Craig, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always a, a treat to have these conversations with you. I wish I could do the next one, or hopefully we'll do the next one properly and in person. Terrific. Good. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a really interesting conversation. Appreciate the, the dialogue. You bet. Thank you, Craig. Bye. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, Our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.